All right, a big, uh, big friendly, big large friendly hello. Manitobaville hello. Friendly Manitobaville hello to you, the listener. You're listening to the Manitobaville podcast. This is Mahangel, and we are talking today to a man who remembers everything. So be careful what you say around him. Be careful what band you start near John Einerson, because he'll write about it. He'll remember what happened. He'll know which microphone you had on stage, who brought it to you to get that gig happening at that community center on that day. And he will put it in a book and sell them to people who are curious to know. Okay, so we're going to jump in the hearse and we're going to drive over there to John Einerson's phone and we're going to talk about uh, Manitoba music, music history. Um, We didn't really scratch... We didn't even get a thumbnail of a scratch on the whole thing, so this is the first of probably a few that a uh, few interviews we'll do with Mr. Einerson based on the legends of the rock world here in Manitoba. And there's a couple I can think of, I think offhand. A couple names come to mind. I don't know. Do you know any? Let me know if you know any, <laughs> and we'll... uh We'll add them to something. We'll put them on a list. And uh, we'll get their tunes and put them on the old... Give them a spin on the old record player. That'd be fun. All right. So anyway, we'll get that interview right away. Just a reminder, search for Manitobaville, wherever you uh, look for Manitobaville on your social medias, on your favorite podcaster. Tell a friend. uh, Follow us, subscribe to us, rate us. Review us if you need to. I guess that helps people find the podcast. Um, so do that if you want. And uh, tell your friends, of course. Uh, we're worldwide, just like ZZ Top. We are, we are we're huge. We're worldwide. And, uh, and we'll talk to any Manitoban anywhere, anytime, and play it for you. Because that's what it's for. Okay, um, so there you go. So you can advertise on the show. Let us know if you want to. We'll hook you up. No big deal. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun doing the old Manitobaville podcast. These are new interviews, brand new. We've uh, realigned the feed with uh, Home Field Marketing. Big thank you to Ewald over there and uh, straightened a lot of things out for us. So we can uh, move forward now with impunity. Well, not total impunity. Immunity, maybe. Doubt, doubt that. <laughs> we don't get impunity or immunity. We will, I don't know what, what other kind of unities are out there, but we will have some unity, I guess. That'd be fun. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Unity. Let's go ahead with unity. All right, so we're going to hit you up with a, a little spot here, I guess, to start off the show, following which will be our interview with Mr. John Einerson. He runs the uh, highly popular Facebook group, John Einerson Remembers. Always something there from the day, this day in history. Some uh, interesting write-ups, some interesting pictures, some good stories. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, he's got a book out. He's got a new book out. What is the new book? Heart of Gold, A History of Winnipeg Music. Uh, he's also written Four Strong Winds about Ian and Sylvia, uh, for what it's worth, the Buffalo Springfield, or just Buffalo Springfield. I don't think they're the. Uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, Story of the Birds, Gene Clark. 
Oh, that'd be a good read because Gene Clark was the talent in that band. Desperados, The Roots of Country Rock, and so many more. I know he wrote a couple about, uh, guess who? I think um, Randy Bachman, I think. Yeah, he wrote that one. That was quite a while ago. That was a good one. Yeah, check out his books. Check out his Facebook group. Just check out anything John Anderson. It's it's super, uh, super interesting to read the work of an, an historian. You learn all kinds of neat little tidbits that you can use. Yes. Next time you're out at a ranch, leaning on the fence, chewing on a, on a piece of grass, you can let it slip. Yeah, you know how, uh, don't suppose you know how Burton Cummins ended up with all the Guess Who publishing. Uh, <laughs> somebody will bite some cow hand down the, uh, down the line there. will be like, oh, I don't know about how, I know about that lawsuit. I know they didn't like something going on there, but what happened? And then boom, for the next half hour, you own the you own the room. You're telling them a story that you got from John Einerson because he's the originator of these stories. He finds out what's going on, and there you go. Okay, so what I'm going to do is stop talking. We're going to do a, a little uh, little spot here, and then boom, we're into the interview. So uh, thank you for listening again. This is Mahangel. This is the Manitobaville podcast, but you already know that because you're here listening. And that's it. That's all we got right now. So cue the bumper. I was interviewed last Friday. A film crew from Toronto came and interviewed me here at my house. There's a, a documentary in production now called Middle of Nowhere. Okay. And it's it's the basic idea is that uh, how is it that so much talent came from this place in the middle of nowhere, Winnipeg? So uh, yeah, it's kind of fun to to talk about that with them. So clearly, someone else sees that this is an important city in terms mm-hmm. of uh, the arts and music. Well, the answer is that uh, your middle of nowhere is somebody else's middle of somewhere. Yeah, that's perfect. That's <laughs> so, perfect. <laughs> but yeah. Neil, Neil Young once said that Winnipeg was the rock and roll capital of Canada, as far as he knew. Was. Is. Yeah, well, <laughs> he's not hasn't been hanging around here for a while, but well, back in the day, certainly it, <laughs> in '65, you could make that argument because shaken all over, yeah, you know, really focused a lot of attention on Winnipeg, and all of a sudden, you know, record labels were hopping the airplanes to get to Winnipeg to sign up other acts as well. There must be more guess who's here in mm-hmm. Winnipeg, and so a lot of a lot of artists got signed up. Yeah, I just say it probably still is because I mean, have you been to Calgary or Vancouver, or Toronto, or? This is, <laughs> I can't, you know, I don't know. I guess well, Toronto was the sort of the mecca back then. It's just it was a place to go to. But yeah. I, I read a lot of people just went to Toronto, like Neil even or different acts went to Toronto and then passed right through. They were down to New York and they were down to LA. That's right, and it, it was like a stopping off point to head to the U.S. because you know back then before you know CanCon and CRTC regulations and all of that, you couldn't really build a career just in Canada, and, and the success that you were going for, and, and international success, you had to go to the States, and, and that was just the reality. Mm. So, you know, acts like Neil and, and others headed to Toronto, and, you know, found, again, there was these barriers, you know, that were there everywhere, so they went off uh, to the States. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, January of 71 when CanCon came in that we started building um, a national music scene in Canada. And it, of course, took a few years to do that. But, you know, by the 1990s, we had a billion-dollar music industry here. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just about 
you know, artists recording. We had uh, management and agents and recording studios and record labels. We had the whole infrastructure that grew from creating this demand on radio stations, you know, forcing radio stations to try to find Canadian music. So enterprising music impresarios and business people, you know, decided that uh, there's money to be made supplying that demand. And out of that became, you know, a huge music industry that, you know, by by the 1990s, you know, some of the biggest recording artists in, in the world were coming from Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, they weren't they weren't necessarily long, you know carrying on their careers from Canada, but they were Canadian, and they recognized uh, you know that you could launch a career from here and then and then take it from there. But it, you know before that, uh, the the highways heading south from the major cities in Canada, I mean, were just uh, were well worn with uh, Canadian artists who you know saw that the only way they could make a make a career and get a shot at something bigger was to head to the states and we had this mass exodus going on until CRTC. So I'm I'm a big supporter of what CanCon did. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm not sure that CanCon is relevant anymore because we live in this that we live in a whole different sphere of technology that doesn't recognize boundaries or borders or anything. So I mean you can be anywhere and be marketing your music um and there's not not necessarily any nationality or any territoriality connected to it. But back in the back in the seventies with CanCon, it, it was important to do that. You know, and the funny thing is, a lot of people think that CanCon, Canadian content regulations that were brought in by the government, was done for patriotic reasons, for cultural reasons, for flag waving. Mm. But more than more than that, it was economic. We consider all, all all the potential revenue that was going to the states because these artists left Canada. Mm-hmm. If we can keep them in Canada, if we can build studios and build and record labels and management and all that sort of thing. Um, the re- revenue will stay here in Canada and and regenerate more uh, in the music in the bis- music business community, but also from a very very kind of calculated practical point of view, it also meant tax revenue dollars for the government as well. Mm-hmm. So it it extended more than just flag waving. But you know, unfortunately, when people think about CanCon, they don't think of the economic benefits that accrued from it. They think, well, hey, gee, we got to you know, trooper got up and waved the flag <laughs> for Canada. It was bigger than that. It was. Yeah. Yeah, it's just sort of like the movie industry where they started training people here. Everybody loved that because it brought in the big movies where they didn't have to card in every single person to work on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, our lower dollar uh, was also another factor in in bringing in movie and television productions up to Canada. And and certainly many cities, including Winnipeg, developed very competitive uh, tax breaks. Mm-hmm. For coming up making a movie so there, there was really you know starting in the 70s there was a very very aggressive move towards enhancing canadian arts uh you know again as you say mm-hmm. with movies and television and, and and production teams and crews and all of that and you know and, and like i was talking about with music recording studios and yes. recording engineers and all that sort of thing um because uh, we were losing all of that when did Motley Crue record in, in Vancouver their big album, Dr. Feelgood? Because that was with Bob Rock, and that was in top-level yeah. studios. Well, yeah, the Mountain was, Studios, probably. Early um, 90s? Was yeah. it 1991? Yeah, the, the years of, of Bob Rock, are, you know, the late 80s into, into the early yeah. 90s. Now, he's, he's a Winnipeg guy. Is he? And he yeah. Oh, wow. And he, uh, yeah, he, he recorded some, you know, some of the best, you know, certainly oh. hard rock mm-hmm. bands of the day. Uh, back then, I remember seeing him with the Paolas yes. and then uh, Rock and Hide yep. as well. But so I he, can he, still he play the Paolas' best of, and it's still 
like top level, like that music he made. Never mind producing. Exactly. Yeah. Eyes of a, Eyes of a Stranger was a great, great song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, all of those. Oh, it's just great. Yeah, like it's just the the best hits of the Pales. Go get it, people. And and you'll see. So he was a Winnipeg guy. I didn't know that. I thought he was maybe yeah. Toronto or somewhere. Nope. I mean, he left. He left young with his with his uh, parents uh, to the to the West Coast. Okay. But but like many, uh, born here in yeah. uh, in Winnipeg. Yeah. Took it with him. And, and there, you know, people like, for example, um, you know, going back, I guess, to the seventies, Terry Jacks, who's you know, Seasons mm-hmm. in the Sun sold you know over thirteen million copies. Before that, the Poppy family scored a whole bunch of million-selling hits, beginning with Which Way You Going, Billy. Right. And he launched his career from Vancouver, but he's you know, born and raised here in Manitoba, you know, grew up in River Heights, went to River Heights School, you know, you know, first got excited about music and getting a guitar and all that while he was here in Winnipeg. And despite him moving to Vancouver, he still regards himself as a Winnipegger. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Yeah. Good on him. Yeah, so then, then he ends up, you know, and this is even before the heyday of the 90s where he's working with top-level talent out of yeah. L.A. Out of, that's worldwide named yeah. talent, you know, drawing yeah. them in. They, they go, where do you want to record? And they're like up there with him. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, building, building top-of-the-line studios in Toronto and, and even just outside of, of, uh, of Montreal, that, that uh, uh, oh, Moran, remember the name of it now, but, oh, Moran Heights. Yeah, at Moran okay. Heights, built a, a fantastic recording studio where you know artists from all over the world, including the Bee Gees and Elton John, and you know, mm-hmm. all came there to uh, record. When was Daniel Lanois working with you too, and, and those guys? That was still that was early on, two thousand the eighties. Yes, that was. Yeah, and he and, came out of Hamilton. Yeah, and you bef- know, and before that, people were coming to work with him, like oh, in the studio he was working in anyway. But yeah. yeah, so they had, like, he wasn't named talent then, like top level producing, but people were coming to, to Canada and, and meeting all these, these great producers and musicians. And yeah, he was a guy who was like working out of his basement, you know, and then to a small studio in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you say, people, artists were coming to him yeah. and seeking him out. And uh, that that's pretty impressive. And yeah. he recorded, you know, he produced some of the top albums of, you know, the last 30 years or so. Yeah, moved right in there. Yeah, because he was the weird, he said he was the weird sound guy. <laughs> People, <laughs> they're like, you want to work with that guy? <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing. What, yeah, like, uh, you know, here's a question, an off-the-wall question. I listen to the first Street Heart album all the time. And it's, it's again, it's just one you can just put on in every every track. It just flows right through. It's, it's amazingly produced, the, the musicianship, the songwriting. Everything about it, just top level. And I know, I know, uh, I know um, uh, the guitar player Paul Dean, mm-hmm. and then Matt Frenette, of course, eventually left to go to and, and form Loverboy. But why didn't? Um, but even the songs that came after, you know, after Paul Dean left, the, like they're so good. But why didn't they ever break out international? Well, here's the thing: the first album, the first Street Art album, in my mind, is their best album, and I agree with you. It, it's it's got such a punch to it. And again, a lot of that is, is down to Paul Dean and Paul Dean's writing. And he had, I mean, I knew Paul Dean in a band called Cannonball, before, and then they became Scrubble O'Kane. And I was in a band that we share, used to share off and on weeks of shows with them. Um, and Paul had a real straight ahead sense of rock and roll. And he brought that to Streetheart. And the best live Streetheart lineup I ever saw uh, was with Paul Dean and Matt Frenette. I mean, they were just fantastic. But mm. Paul... Paul's sense of, of rock and roll 
wasn't quite fitting with what street art was doing, but also more to the point, street art didn't seem to be getting the breaks. Mm -hmm. And when he was contacted by Bruce Allen, I mean, Loverboy was put together. It was assembled by Bruce Allen. And um, it was, it was a bigger shot because Bruce Allen managed BTO and, you know, he had already started, you know, to, to, to move Brian uh, Adams along. So it was a bigger step for him. And and he kind of saw the writing on the wall John Hanna, who I used to play with in Pig Iron back in the late sixties, <laughs> um, he he came into the band. He fit he fit it well, but he didn't have the same sense of a commercial ability to write uh, you know a real catchy song the way Paul Dean did. It's the thing with Street Heart, though, you got to understand it was it was um, really I don't want to say bad. I'll say ineffective management. Yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, those guys. I mean, they sold tons of records and never saw a penny, and still don't see a penny from any of that because uh, when they broke up, they were they were bankrupt. Yeah. And they had to sell their equipment to pay their debts, and their manager actually actually went into hiding. <laughs> really? Because he he had borrowed you know a lot of money from the wrong kind of people, yeah. who wanted you know to keep the band afloat, and they wanted their money back. I mean, Streetheart were signed to a Canadian record label, and that can often be difficult because you're trying to then push the act into the States when it's not signed to the American yeah. arm arm of the label. And that happened with Trooper. It happened with Harlequin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did happen with April Wine until, you know, years later they finally yeah. scored. Well, in Chilliwack, States. every label they signed with collapsed under them. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Five and, albums in a row or something. It was just horrible. And good yeah, music. And, that, and they couldn't even push the good music. Yeah. And, and, and those are the bands that we think of as what we call classic rock, Canadian classic rock, whether it's Trooper or Chilliwack mm-hmm. or you know, Harlequin, Streetheart. Um, but they never made it across the border. Even the Tragically Hip, they made nothing across the border in the States. Yeah. They, you know, um, Dan Aykroyd got them a, a gig on Saturday Night Live, but no one had heard of them before that. Their records weren't even in the stores in the States. Mm-hmm. So any attempts they made to, to crack the U.S. failed because they were signed to Canadian labels. Yeah. Now, the, the, the situation, I'll just use a comparison with the Guess Who. Um, they, they signed a production deal with Canadian management, but then when they recorded their Wheatfield Soul album, which included These Eyes, which went on to sell a million and a half copies, mm-hmm. what their production deal did was they paid for the recording of that in the States, and then the production company took the album and sold it to RCA. Okay. So they got in in New York, RCA in New York. Mm-hmm. So that meant RCA is going to is going to be throwing all their might, all their clout, and all their money behind this act because it's signed to an American label. Mm-hmm. So I mean, these eyes, of course, you know, relaunched them in the public after four years of, of uh, silence from the Guess Who. Mm-hmm. But that was that that was an important distinction, an important difference. The same with Backman Turner Overdrive. They signed to uh, Mercury Records in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So they've got the might of this big label in the States behind them, right. rather than signing with a subsidiary label in Canada. And you, you look back on, on like the, the, the 90s when we had, for example, Network Records, N-E-T-T-W-E-R-K. You know, and they were out of Vancouver, and they signed a lot of you know, good Canadian bands. But they didn't have the ability to get those acts across the border. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can be a star in Canada, and that's and that's great. And, and there, you know, there are a lot of, you know, acts who have made a living mm-hmm. by doing that. But you don't break bigger beyond that unless you're connected directly into uh, the United States. I remember Blue Rodeo didn't go. They had the chance to break into the states on the college circuit, but 
mm-hmm. their bass player was busted for marijuana in Canada and his record wouldn't let him wouldn't let him go across and so yeah. they said well if he's not coming with us we're not going and they knew yeah. they said they had a band meeting and they knew it was going to kill their US career just kill it yeah and their management yeah. was like you got to replace the guy and go cuz this is like golden opportunity and bare naked ladies around that time went they showed like they said look at bare naked ladies look at us and that's the difference and that's exactly right the bare naked ladies really focused on after you know after connecting with an american label um, they really focused on the United States and, mm-hmm. and, you know, they worked their asses off and you really got to give them credit for it because they spent, you know, almost two years working constantly in the States. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, that means, you know, playing nickel dime gigs in bottom of a, of a 10 act bill at a, at a rock festival or third mm-hmm. on the bill at some concert hall. Yeah. Uh, but it gets your name out. It gets people saying, Oh, okay, these guys, maybe I'll buy their record. And it builds. You know the sad thing about um, the the recording business today, if if you can even call it a business anymore, mm-hmm. um, artists who are signed to a record label, which nowadays is fairly rare, um, because of all the costs involved in launching an act, and you know, obviously producing an album, promoting an album, video, all this stuff, and we're talking millions of dollars. The reality is that you know when your record, if you're an unknown name, when your record is released, if you're not a hit right out of the bag then they'll drop you because mm-hmm. they've invested so much money in you. But you take someone in the 70s like Bonnie Raitt who didn't make it big until her fifth album. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they nurtured her. Each album showed a little more promise, a little more better. Songwriting got better. Um, you know, she worked further up the bill, higher up the bill at concerts and shows and clubs and whatever to the point that, you know, the fifth album broke her. But nowadays, you can't do that unless you're marketing the records yourself on your own label and, and selling it directly to the public because record labels can't afford to, to, to wait for you to break. Mm-hmm. You break now or you're done. And I think too, uh, you know, the example being um, an artist from Brandon named Amanda Stott mm-hmm. and she was a country singer and a country performer and she had a great voice. So well, I, I can't remember if it was like uh, Sony or BMG, but it was one of the big labels signed her, you know, when she was 13. Yeah. And and they, they put some money into her to have her work with other songwriters. You know, basically they, they were uh, nurturing her career. And then by the time she was 16, went into a studio, uh, big money behind it, great you know producer and great musicians, recorded an album that was released on her high school graduation day when she was 17. Wow. They already spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars pushing her. Lots of promo on the album. They basically bought the album and the single into the charts. Somebody to love was the single, mm-hmm. but nobody bought. Nobody bought it. I mean, it sold less than six thousand copies. So mm-hmm. there, there she is, signed at thirteen. First album at seventeen, dropped at nineteen, uh-huh. wow. because she she wasn't coming out of the uh, you know coming out of the shoot, mm-hmm. coming off the firing line, selling you know a hundred thousand albums. And the record label just couldn't afford to support her and, and keep her floating because they were losing money on her. You know, and, and, and I just saw in the news today that Neil Diamond has sold his catalog now. So he joins a long list of these major artists who are selling off their back catalog. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, th- these companies, these corporations, the Universal and all these others who, who are buying these catalogs, they're not buying it for the song he recorded last month. Yeah. They're buying it for the catalog he recorded starting in 66 yeah. and onward. Because there's there's marketability for them, and the artists like Neil Young, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, and on Stevie Nicks, and on and on and on, Bruce Springsteen, 
they recognize that music isn't a commodity anymore that people go out and buy. Mm-hmm. They download it. Yeah. And the reality of, you know, of, of Spotify, which is the dominant downloader, not the only one, but the dominant one, is you're making fractions of a penny on that, mm-hmm. on those downloads. So nobody's going to the store and buying a CD. And, and if, you know, an artist like Bruce Springsteen probably got, you know, 12 to 14 percent on retail price of a CD, you know, based on about $17, mm-hmm. but nobody's buying them anymore. So, so where's his income stream? Well, they play some of the stuff on the radio. Again, that's pennies. Uh, and then Spotify, which is fractions of pennies. So better to sell now when, you, when someone's offering you the big money than wait a couple of years when it's worth nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's the sad reality of the music business nowadays is music is becoming, you know, almost, almost, valueless for the songwriters and the performers. And it's a sad state, but I mean, I also recognize that technology, of course, has changed all of that. But we're going to now start hearing um, Cracklin' Rosie get on board uh, from Neil Diamond promoting a wine. Yeah. You know, and Bob Dylan songs promoting ladies' underwear, and you know Neil Young songs promoting uh, Toyota cars, because the corporations are going to are going to sell that stuff to them. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a real change. The, the whole paradigm has has shifted so much in 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 the whole music business, and and you kind of feel sorry in many ways for for the young songwriters and the young performers who grew up on the fantasy dreams of the recording contract and the big time only to discover that that's not there anymore. Everything has evaporated and you better be resourceful and you better be creative and you better keep your day job. If you're going to be marketing your music uh, yourself, because that's the only way that you can do it nowadays. Yeah. And don't sign to a a big label. David Crosby said that he said, if, if any, he said advice he would give to a young musician today, don't be a professional musician. Don't sign a contract with a big label. Find some other way to make money off it yourself and own it. That's right, because um, you know the contracts, the contracts are skewed to the label's advantage. Yeah. And you know it used to be, it used to be, you know, back in the '60s and '70s, um, the songwriter got paid first. So on an album, um, the songwriter would get nine cents, nine cents for a song for every sale of the album mm-hmm. from that. And um, and in fact, a songwriter got paid before the artist got paid, because right. the artist didn't get paid until all the um, all the expenses charged against them mm-hmm. were paid off. Yeah, you, know, you like, hear about bands. You hear about bands signing you know one point five million dollar recording contract. Yeah. All that means is that the label loaned you one point five million, and you're not going to get a penny, buddy, until they get their one point five million yeah. back. Yeah, you're paying your own wage from day one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and but with songwriters, you got paid right away, and and the debt that the recording artists owed to the label didn't affect you. Mm-hmm. It didn't affect you at all. So, so even though the band wasn't making any money off of record sales necessarily because they owed the record label a fortune, mm-hmm. the songwriter was getting his nine cents uh, for each song on each album that yeah. sold. But you know, but in the 1990s, record labels changed that. They mm-hmm. changed it to a 360 deal. Right. The, 360, the 360 deal is that we're going to take money from songwriting. They're not going to get paid until the debt is paid off. We're going to take it from the artist. We're not, they're not going to get money until the, until the debt is paid off. And they also then take a percentage of your merchandise, too. Mm. I mean, merchandise used to be, you know, I mean, that, that was too. separate. That, yeah. And that, that, that's, it's merch that paid your bills for traveling and touring. Yep. But 360 deals said, you know, because we're investing, you know, millions into trying to get you off the ground and get your record out there, we want a fast track to get that money back. So we're going to take a percentage of, every revenue stream that you have. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it, it's it's like an, it's like indentured servitude. I mean, you're like a slave to the record label. Yeah. The best example of that I found was this about, oh God, probably about 12 or 15 years ago, the Juno Awards, watching it on TV, and Jan Arden for, for Living Under June. It's a big album. She won five Juno Awards for that album. And she came up to the mic, and she, she's very gracious. She said, thank you so very, very much for this. This is really wonderful. Speaking to a, you know, a crowd of music industry people, right, mm-hmm. at, the, at the Junos. And she says, this is wonderful. Thank you so very much. Uh, but I'm still $250,000 in debt. Mm-hmm. And it was like, yeah. you know, everybody, everybody's jaw dropped, except everybody in the business knew that. Yeah. But everybody else who's a fan, who's, you know, watching the show, oh, I love Jen Arden, I love her music, didn't realize, my God, she could sell a million and a half records and still be a quarter of a million dollars in debt. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty scary stuff. And, you know, going back to, to Streetheart and, and Harlequin, the sad thing about them is uh, a lot of money was spent producing not just the music on their albums, but cover art. I mean, mm. uh, Harlequin spent a fortune on cover designs by Hypnosis. I mean, the big guys, they do Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. um, and they would pay them fifty to $100,000 to do an album cover art, the cover wow. art, yeah. and the band guys would be getting maybe session fees of 150 bucks. Yeah. You know, a session doing this stuff. So someone else was making all the money and not the band members themselves. And, and, that, pretty... and that's the hope of the art will sell the album. It'll fly off the shelves because of the cover. That's what they're hoping. Well, yeah, exactly. But, you know, um, nowadays that means nothing. I mean, you yeah. consider all, I mean, I, I can remember standing in record stores and buying an album because I thought the cover was really cool and being intrigued by what the music might be like from a band who, who, who would use this particular art. Mm-hmm. On the cover, and you know, for example, I mean, King Crimson's uh, in the Court of the Crimson King, mm-hmm. you know, with that that really grotesque face and the mouth open, and you're looking down the teeth and the tongue. Yeah. I mean, on, on a record album shelf at a record store beside Jerry the Pacemakers and you know the Buckinghams, you know, nice pictures of four and five guys is this mm-hmm. really eye-catching art, and buying it and taking it home and having my complete life changed by that album because of that cover that, that first got my attention. And all that's gone. Yeah. And you consider, too, uh, that artists spend time, you know, thinking about um, the the ordering of the songs. You know, what's going to be the opening song inside one, opening song inside mm-hmm. two, how do we inside one? You know, I mean, a lot of planning goes into that. And nowadays that means nothing. You t- you, again, going back to Sgt. Yeah. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, yeah. a lot of time went into sequencing, sequencing those songs. And, and you know, open up with Sgt. Pepper, and it segued nicely into, um, with a little help from my friends, and of course it closed with this bombastic, incredible A Day in the Life. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, if you're downloading, you, you miss all of that. Mm-hmm. You yeah. download a single song, and, and, and you miss the sequencing and the connections. I'm not saying one song flowed into the other, mm-hmm. but there was a logic to the way each song was sequenced in, in that order. And that's all gone, and, and artwork is all gone. It's just the song itself. Yeah, I, I'm going on a rant here, so you well, can okay. steer me towards what you want me to talk <laughs> oh, there's, about. There's a bunch of things in there. But yeah, just on this recent one, there's a master class in, a, in about 10 paragraphs in the... Um, Who's a Ken? Ken, somebody. He was a producer for Fleetwood Mac, and he uh, he was writing about um, rumors and how they were sequencing the album and how he he said Stevie Nicks was mad because um, which song was a landslide or uh, Silver Springs? It was Silver Springs. What didn't make the album? Yeah, that's and, right. It didn't. And he said. The only reason it didn't is because it didn't fit anywhere. We and be, if we put it in, nothing else fit. We were dealing with twenty minutes aside, 
and every song had its length and there was you know something something just couldn't be there and and, and, and it was that song and she was bitter about it because she gave the rights to her mother <laughs> the publishing and said you're gonna make a lot of money mom and then nope no you're not it's not even gonna appear until a live album 20 years later and it was like wow you know but yeah and 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 artists did that kind of thing. They thought about, yeah. you know, how, how the songs fit. Because really starting, I mean, Sgt. Pepper was a turning point for a lot of reasons, but it's a turning point in terms of seeing music, music is certainly an uh, album, which is a commodity mm-hmm. in itself, but, but seeing an album as a piece of art. Yeah. And, you know, Sgt. Pepper was a piece of art. It's got the gatefold cover, which was fairly new at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but the key thing that made it art was on the back cover of the lyrics. Yeah, that's the first time you. I mean, even Bob Dylan wasn't doing that. Yeah. The first time that you saw lyrics. Yeah. Um, you know, like you wouldn't have the lyrics to. I saw her standing there on an L because it's just teeny bop. I saw, you know, mm-hmm. she was just seventeen. You know what I mean? That's just crap. But this, you know, Sgt. Pepper. This was poetry, mm-hmm. and the, the way the art, the cover. I mean, the brilliant cover art that went into that. Uh, and so it was seeing music as art and seeing the songs as being sequenced in an artful kind of way, mm-hmm. not just like. Not just like um, the, the Beatles' first album in North America called Beatlemania with the Beatles, which is just a collection of songs. It doesn't matter if you played the second song, but then played the first song or whatever. Yeah. It's just a collection of songs. But well, Capitol screwed those albums up anyway. They, they, they mixed did. them they up did. and they left stuff off and they put other stuff on. And Yeah, they, they said they, there's, no, there's no similar experience between UK and the USA. Yeah, until until Sgt. Pepper, and then that's when the, the Beatles' foot mm-hmm. came down and said, "Every album from now on is going to be the same," yeah. because they didn't want that album chopped up. Oh, let's take out for the yeah. benefit of Mr. Kite and put it on another album. Yeah, that sort of thing, um, and and that's when we see rock music as art. We see albums, um, you know, album sales uh, eclipsing single sales and 45s. The decline of the 45. Mm-hmm. The measure of success of an artist is that becomes album sales and not singles sales. Mm-hmm. And even even album like Sgt. Pepper, there was no single released off of it. Yeah, you know, where you know, whereas a couple of years before there there would be a single on the album, or sometimes with the case of the Beatles, you know, a couple of singles off off of an album. And they would they put singles that, in between, and then they wouldn't put that same song on the album because they didn't want right. to repeat themselves. That's right, because yeah. they were seeing the album as being a separate statement from the yeah. single. So they're throwing out what singles every three months or something. Well, that's that's the that's the shelf life of a single. That's yeah. the reality of a single yeah. is. To, to release it and have it go up the charts, however high it's going to be, and then go down the charts, was three months. And you mm. always had to have another single ready, because as soon as your, the, this current single starts to decline, you need to release a new one. So record label contracts, you know, certainly back in the 60s and 70s, said that um, bands were required, or artists, recording artists, were required to release four singles a year. So that's every three months. Mm-hmm. And two albums. And then two are in between the two albums as well. So it, you know, it was based sometimes on on how many songs a year you had to do, two of them being on albums and four of them being singles, A and B sides, that sort of thing. So you were, and and then and nowadays you look at some artists who take years to finish an album. Mm-hmm. And back then, music success was fleeting, and if you weren't in in the public's ears or in the public's face, mm-hmm. they, you were forgotten. Yeah. You constantly had to be had to be releasing records, touring, new promo pictures in the magazines, on TV, all of that because there's always someone else waiting in the wings to <laughs> to to be you know, have their album or their single released. And you know, we talk about I did I did um I do this these podcasts called Off the Record, okay. and I did one on um, One Hit Wonders, 
And although we, we're always kind of derisive, oh, one hit wonder, you know, crappy song, you know, in the year 25, 25 or mm-hmm. 96 tears. But when you consider that, you know, back in the day when those singles were released, there were 100 singles a week being released across the country, across mm-hmm. the entire, you know, yeah. rock music scene in North America and coming from England. So to rise above that 100 to get regional, rate, regional radio mm-hmm. play and then to be strong enough to break out beyond the region and get national play, that's a big deal because 99 others didn't make it and yeah. you did. Yeah. So it's it's... It, it's easy to kind of laugh off these, you know, one-hit wonders and have fun with them because they kind of came and went and the artists came and went. But just getting that one hit in itself, is a, it, it's formidable to be yeah. able to do that. And the hardest thing to do is to be able to follow it. And that's what have all these artists that had the one-hit wonders all released records after mm. their hit. Yeah. But it, they never got either – the song wasn't good enough, the recording wasn't good enough, not enough uh, – you know, uh, promotion and interest. People, people's tastes moved on. Whatever they couldn't score another hit, and that that's the case with the Guess Who in '65. Shaken all over becomes a big hit across Canada, top five. It becomes uh, a hit in the states, reaching number 22 on the Billboard charts, hmm. and um, nothing after that. They continued to release records until these eyes in 1969, which breaks through again and becomes a huge hit for them. Uh, because they're signed to uh, an American label that, that took a chance on them. But, right. you know, when These Eyes became a hit, um, people thought in the States, thought, oh, God, this guy, one hit wonder here. Wow, where have they been? They had released 18 singles. Yeah. Uh, up to these eyes, eighteen singles. Wow. It's not like they're. It's not like this was their first single or even their second or third single. You know, they had, they had that to, to to work at that. Sure. And either DJs were just taking a listen and going, no, or like program managers, they're like, okay, not fitting, not something we're interested yeah. in, or they're not getting the payola for it. <laughs> so well, and and yeah. and that's the thing too. I mean, if you can't. Before your record's going to get played in the radio, some music mm-hmm. director or program director has to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, they listen to the first, you know, 10, 15 seconds of it. It doesn't grab them next. Mm-hmm. And the thing that, that caused Shaken All Over to be a hit was their record label in Canada, Quality Records, decided instead of putting Chad Allen and the Expressions, which is a hokey kind of a name anyway, <laughs> and, and they were kind of known a little bit, Chad mm-hmm. Allen, they just put guess who. So in other words, they were saying to record uh, radio station uh, programmers, guess who this is? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it piqued their curiosity. So they put the record on. And you can tell in the first five seconds of that song that this song is alive. This song mm-hmm. is a kicker. And so not knowing who the artist was, not knowing it was a, you know, five you know, hicks from Winnipeg, um, it, got, it got played on, it got put onto stations rotations and played across Canada. Because it, they had to do that little bit of a trick, that little subterfuge, yeah. to get people to listen to their record. You know, Dominic Troiano from the Mandela tells the story of you know when they recorded their first single and going to Chum Records in Toronto with the 45 and saying, "Oh, can you play our record?" Because you know, Chum didn't play local music. Mm-hmm. You got to play a record. We're guys from here, you know, please. And the DJ took the record, took the 45, broke it over his knee, <laughs> handed it back to them in two pieces, and said, "There's your record." <laughs> wow. Because they weren't going to play it, yeah. and, and unless they were forced to, and, and that gets back to my earlier point about um, CanCon, we had to force radio, we had to shove mm-hmm. it down their throats. You better find Canadian music. You know, for the first year, we heard a hell of a lot of Gordon Lightfoot and Anne Murray mm-hmm. uh, until we started getting Canadian, new Canadian artists, younger Canadian artists recording, and the radio yeah. station had to play it. They couldn't say, 
oh, this isn't very good, I'm not going to play it. They had to, because they had to yeah. play 30% Canadian content. Yeah, and when I was coming up in the 80s learning about this through schooling and stuff, that was the thing. We're, we're, there's a why, and they said, well, the radio guys don't want to play it because it's not... They don't think it's good enough. They don't think then they want to play U.S. music or right. you know European or whatever, and they and they said that was the biggest pushback was the radio, and they would shove it off to times nobody was listening just to fill the That's mandate. Right. They would do anything they could to to get around it. Yeah, you used to get a lot of Canadian content played in the middle of the night because mm-hmm. then they could say, oh well, we played our thirty yeah. percent, you know, between one and four. Yeah. Um, but you know the legislation. Said, and this was for TV too. It had to be Canadian content between eight eight in the morning and eleven at night. Mm-hmm. So you you couldn't put the littlest hobo on TV at three in the morning and run five episodes of it back to back just to get your Canadian content done. Yeah. So yeah. Well, that's it, surprising it because move. because TV TV owners and radio owners they're not greedy people, are they? <laughs> oh no, they're in it for the fun of it. <laughs> yeah, I thought they're altruistic <laughs> and the nicest people you could ever yeah, yeah. meet. You know. <laughs> Well, you know, radio in in Canada in um, you know January of '71 when CanCon came in, and even before when it was you know the measure was being considered, radio united uh, against it, and you know lots of protests about it, about CanCon, and uh, the Canadian government got Skip Prokop, who was the leader of a band called Lighthouse, who had a lot of Canadian hits, Mm -hmm. to to speak to Parliament about about the benefits of CanCon. You know, don't listen to the radio guys. Listen to us. We're the musicians, and CanCon is going to be good for us, and it's going to be going to be good for Canadian musicians, and going to be good for for Canada and Canadian business as well. But radio didn't want it. Oh, they hated CanCon. They had and rights. They would love to see it go away too. <laughs> they, they had rights. They wanted their freedom back. Yeah, and exactly. The, the, these mandates. They got oh. their trucks out and they're blocking. They're blockading yeah. Parliament. Now. I guess we shouldn't talk about these mandates and freedom too loud. We'll have a convoy going down saying, "Yes, yeah, yeah, CanCon." Right. What are you trying to do, communists? <laughs> yeah, there'll be a convoy in front of uh, 92 City FM. Yeah, yeah. Let, 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 it, let them play U.S. music all day long. As, you know, <laughs> as long as it has Trump in the name, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's one thing to say about Winnipeg um, back in the 60s and 70s. Certainly, especially so in the 70s, too. Winnipeg mm-hmm. radio stations supported local talent, mm-hmm. um, more so than a lot of other big city radio stations. Um, and you know you had local local artists, not just bands, but local artists who would score hit hit records or certainly charted records mm-hmm. here in Winnipeg that wouldn't get played you know anywhere else because the radio stations here supported them and certainly give credit you know initially to CKY and CKRC, but then when FM came you know became the the mode of um, music. Uh, broadcasting, mm-hmm. 92 City FM was a big supporter of local music. And, and a lot of uh, bands in the 1980s got a chance to be heard on radio. And, and 92 also had their homegrown series where they were they were getting a lot of local acts and they were paying for them to go in and record stuff. Yeah. And putting it out on, on an album or a CD, homegrown volume one and homegrown volume two, which was which was a great opportunity for, for these artists because in some cases... Big the big record labels, and this is still in the era of record labels. The big record labels heard this stuff, listened to it, and said, "Hey, these you know, Hypnogogo, that's a good track. Let's you know, let's let's sign them to a bigger contract, mm-hmm. that sort of thing." So, a, a, really, a lot of credit to um, local local radio for supporting uh, the, the the music scene here. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of those guys, like not a lot, a couple, I guess, from from those bands from the '80s, the the big Winnipeg bands. 
And I'd say, you know, I grew up Western Manitoba and all through the 80s on the radio, I heard that music, so I knew their music. And I was like, you guys are, you, you know, you're getting on radio. This is, this is great. And I guess now that I hear you say that, they were probably looking at me because it's like, yeah, here <laughs> in Manitoba, <laughs> well, <laughs> but not in LA and not in New York. And they, you know, they weren't saying anything because they're, you know, very polite people, you know, they're prairie boys, but, uh, but I didn't realize, yeah, it wasn't like that kind of support really skews somebody like me. Cause I, I'm like, this is great music. Like, why isn't anybody yeah. else hearing this or, or yeah. raving about it or, you know, and, and, and thank God that the but like ninety two in particular, thank God they did that because yeah, yeah it, it wasn't they weren't getting the records played you know in New York, but by playing them here in Winnipeg, I mean that really elevated the profile of these bands and they kind of became almost like rock stars and yeah. you know although they were playing the Saint Vitale Hotel or they're playing a social at the Native Club on the weekend or at Amsu, mm -hmm. um, they were they were it was big time and and you know that was the era of socials. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can get a thousand people at an Amsu social coming to see uh, the pumps yeah, yeah. and the fuse and the cheer, you know, p playing these shows. So that that uh, that was good for the local music scene. But you're right. It didn't necessarily mean that, that it, it yeah. got them it airplay doesn't. outside of Winnipeg, but it certainly was good for Winnipeg because if they were in Toronto or Vancouver, they wouldn't even get the local play. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Brandon in college in 87, 88. I can't remember which year it was, but Streetheart, I guess it was Kenny Shields at that time. He was under his Kenny Shields moniker, was mm -hmm. coming to play in Brandon at, um, uh, oh, what is that? The uh, Keystone Center? The, Keys the Keystone Bar <laughs> across okay. from the Keystone Center. <laughs> okay. But it was, a, it was a happening little bar. And, um, but he, he was coming to, they were coming to play there. And one of my friends who was, uh, he introduced me to so much music in college, uh, he he got so excited. He's got to go. We got to go. So I was like, okay. And then he got more excited. He says, "Spiders with them. Spiders back with them. He's playing with them." And he was just <laughs> bouncing off the walls. He was so excited. And we went. He, he says, "Got to get there early. Got to get good seats." So we're up at, at the good seats. We're at a table near the near the stage. But as soon as they started playing, I remember just looking at him. I know this song. <laughs> and they played the next song. And I was like, I know this song too. This is great. <laughs> and it went like that the whole show. And he's like, yeah, yeah, isn't this great? And it is just wild. But uh, yeah, I guess that, wow, it's like a, the fishbowl then. I was experienced well, the, the life of a fish. The, um, you know, speaking of Spider, I mean, Spider was, I mean, he still is a brilliant bass player. He's with Loverpoint now. Yeah. But um, why don't they he, let him play? Why don't they? Like, when he was with Tom Cochran and stuff, I was like, oh, well, Tom Cochran's going to do a lot better now. He's got Spider. And then there's, it's just the music's like, you know, pretty basic, good, but, you know. Well, but it, 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 it you know, it, you've got to, you've got to suit the song. And, and you, yeah. you've got to, you've got to serve the song. It's like, you know, I well, then don't like, hire Spider. Get, get well, somebody who does that for agree, a living. Like, if, if you, like, Spider should have been his own band at some point, just out there going, check it out, you know, like. I, I ran a rock show. I ran a rock <laughs> show program at, at, at St. John's Ravens Court for 25 years. It was after school rock program. We have mm -hmm. 100 kids in this program. And I, because I've known Spider for years, I, I, I asked him to come in and I said, I'd pay him a hundred bucks. And he came in and he did a, a bass workshop with all the kids who played bass in, in my rock show program. And mm -hmm. I just, I just, you know, I just kind of put the word on an announcement, you know, we're going to have a, a workshop, you know, next Wednesday after school with, uh, 
bass player Spider Sanif, and it was, I have all these kids. I mean, they were like 15, 16 years old. It was like I, it's like I'd said Paul McCartney's coming. Yeah, yeah. They were just so excited, and and I, and I don't know if you know Spider, but he's such a down to earth guy. Yeah, I met him and once. He's, at, in a, yeah, he's in a so session. unassuming. Yeah. He's yeah. so unassuming. But uh, you know, he showed he showed these kids, you know, some of the tricks of the trade, and you know, slap bass and all that sort of thing that they've mm-hmm. never been able to do before. So it was really worthwhile that way. Here's the thing about Spider, though. I mean, he's he's in his sixties, mm-hmm. and he's making a comfortable living from from Loverboy, which yeah. is good because for a long time he, you know, it, it was pretty spotty for him, mm-hmm. and certainly with 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 street art, there was no money in that, yeah. Yeah. you know. And then when he was with Tom Cochran, well, Cochran didn't work steady, you know, mm-hmm. Cochran or Red Wright didn't work steady all the time. So it's money here, and it's you know yeah. maybe three months of no money. So getting in with Loverboy, I mean, he's he's reunited again with with uh, Paul Dean and Matt Frenette, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, he's probably well, he's yeah, he is. I know he is. He's on a salary. He's yeah. not part of the corporation, yeah. but they they certainly pay him well, and they pay him steady, whether they're playing or not. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a good it's a good living for him, and you know, he never saw the big time. Mm-hmm. He was close to it close to it, you know, a little bit with Streetheart. Yeah. Tom Cochran more so, but it was always Cochran. Mm-hmm. He, was the, he was the name in the front to it. So this is, you know, this, this is this is good for him. And and I I can appreciate what he's doing. He's a family man. He's got kids and a wife. Um, it's a good steady income for him. And he's playing with guys that, I mean, Loverboy still do well. Well, they're touring you know, this and, year again, aren't they? I, I heard but, uh, Mike Reno on a podcast the guy does out of L.A., and they're talking about they're going on on uh, uh, with uh, oh um, sticks and another band from that era, Foreigner, I think Foreigner. Okay, well yeah. you know the, uh, the, I don't know Foreigners including Lou Graham because Lou Graham really can't sing anymore. You yeah, know, I don't know. And, and and Mick Rogers, I'm not sure he's he's uh, or Mick Jones, I'm not sure he's involved. With Are that. they Canadian but, band? Foreigner? No. Then no, I don't care. No. <laughs> they're from they're they're English guys from New York, yeah, yeah. but I mean, uh, I've seen Loverboy play casino gigs, and yeah. they just blow the audience yeah, away. Exactly, that's another. And, you don't remember it, but but to put that album on again, I remember when that first came out, you know, and I got that album and for Christmas or something, the first Loverboy, and it yeah. was great. It is, yeah, it's a great it's a great album. I mean, Paul, as I said before, Paul Dean, he he had a really good ear for writing, yeah. you know, catchy commercial. Powerful songs, and, and they were powerful songs. And you know, people probably time. say, "Oh, Loverboy, yeah, One Hit Wonder, wasn't it? Or maybe they had yeah, two. No, no. Isn't there? Oh, yeah, no. I can remember two songs. And then it's like, well, listen to this. And yeah. you know, an hour later, they come on going, oh, "Okay, yeah, different." Yeah, and they're still they're still able to make you know, I mean, doing doing uh, doing casino gigs, you know, fifteen twenty thousand dollars a night. Mm-hmm. You know, line up, you know, line up uh, a tour of those, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and, and, you know, in a lot of cases, you didn't even have to travel with gear to yeah. bring your guitar because everything is backline. Yeah. And you show up, and, and in your contract, it says you have to have, uh, you know, Spider has to have uh, an Ampeg SVT yeah. amp. So show up, and, you know, the backline is provided by the promoter. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, certainly for George, George Belanger and, and Harlequin, he, you know, I was talking to George probably a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. and he was saying, you know, it's just so much easier nowadays because, mm-hmm. you know, I, we just get on a plane. Yeah, and and fly there. I mean, you can carry guitars as you know, yeah. carry on luggage kind of thing. Don't and, let them um, handle it. <laughs> yeah, well, and you don't have to lug amps and PA and drums and all mm-hmm. this other shit, and and you know, haul a roadie along with yeah. you and crew and all that. Yeah, because the 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 venue provides all of that. Yeah, and that's so nice. Yeah, that's and so nice. and that's why George said to me, he said, 
since Halloween broke up and I put the band back to well, I, I resurrected the band name is what George did. Mm-hmm. Uh, he makes tons more money than he ever made yeah. in Halloween. Because yeah. he was on a salary with Harlequin, because all the money was being spent on everything else, yep. and you know he can he can pay each of the guys, you know, the other four guys, a decent take, mm-hmm. you know, for a gig or for the week, and he can come home from those gigs, you know, five and ten thousand dollars in his own pocket. Yeah, and you know, so, um, Mike Reno said because they put a new single out, but he said it's not on an album. They wouldn't. He said he wouldn't even consider spending the money to record a whole album. He yeah. would say, if we have one good song, let's go in, let's record that one song put it out before we tour and and that's it he said and and it's they're just not throwing money away anymore especially right, through because, deals and that yeah and 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 you know the, the way radio works who's going to play it yeah you know and that's the sad thing for a lot of of i guess what what is often termed a dinosaur acts you know classic mm-hmm. rock acts from the 70s and 80s is no one wants to hear their new music and no one wants to play it, but yeah. the fans want it though. So if you can if you can put a, a new song or two, do it on a, a CD single or, or mm-hmm. have it download from your own website, yep. um, you know that you may be able to you know pay enough for, for the uh, recording costs and production of it. But mm-hmm. the big thing for a lot of these acts, though, uh, you know, and 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 these retro acts, is merchandise. Yeah. You know, I mean, here's here's a statement that might surprise you. The Rolling Stones make more money from a gig from merchandise than from tickets. Yeah. And to to get a, even the the worst seat, in, you know, in front of a Gerber at some <laughs> arena yeah. to see the Stones is 250 bucks. Yeah. You know, so they're making a million and a half bucks from from the ticket sales. You know, after they pay the promoter, mm-hmm. but they they make you know two million off merch because they can they can get you know t-shirts made for five bucks. Mm-hmm. And and every boomer guy and girl like me wants to be able to to go to the grocery store the next day wearing the t-shirt yeah. from the gig yeah. it's like a, it's like a badge of honor and they have so the they great imagery the, too so that yeah, helps. And, and, yeah and they can sell they can sell the t-shirt for 50 60 bucks five bucks to you know to mm-hmm. make it the, the promoter you know i mean if you're a, if you're an unknown band the promoter will take a big cut of your merch but if for the stones the promoter's happy to take five or ten percent off mm-hmm. of it and the rest goes to the stones so they make millions off of, you know, crappy yeah. little T-shirts and anything they can put the logo on, you know, purses, wallets, keychains, deeds, yeah. blankets, bedding, you know, anything. And and the lineups are huge because yeah. all these boomers want that. They want that to be able to strut yeah. to work or to the Safeway or <laughs> yeah. on the beach or whatever with the T-shirt. Like, Instant oh, image. he went to see the Stones. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, it's all about business. And you know, it's funny, before you said the, the singles were the driving uh, sign of success, then the albums yep. were the driving sign of success. And when the, the Stones stopped having singles or big album sales, suddenly tours became the big symbol of success because they sure. were having the big tours and they're like, look, we're making in, you know, 200 million a year on, you know, 40 shows or something. Yeah. And, uh, but it was like, I remember when that was happening, I'm like, well, who, who cares that we get any number of people like that together. If you don't make a lot of money, you're, you're not very smart, but, but it seemed to change the whole dynamic of success in music was how big a crowd can you get together? No matter sure. what the show's like. Oh, and, and, you know, back, back to Beatle days and all their contemporaries coming out of England and, you know, stones and hermits, hermits and on and on. I mean, they, they would play in England. They would play like, like, Theaters, mm-hmm. which could hold maybe at most maybe three thousand people, mm-hmm. but they could come to they could come to North America and play you know stadiums, play arenas, play these huge gigs, and it was yeah. far more money to be made and and playing for much bigger audiences here. Now here's yeah. the thing about the Stones, being able to 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 be such a huge tour draw, 
I'll bet you my guitar collection that nobody is going to a Stones concert and, and, and shelling out between 250 and 500 bucks a ticket to hear their new song. Mm-hmm. No, They're no, coming no. there, and they're going to well, go berserk when they hear Start Me Up. They're going to go berserk when they hear Satisfaction. They're going to go yeah. berserk when they hear uh, you know, all the old songs. Yeah. The difference between Herman's Hermits playing next month at, um, they're playing at uh, Club Regent, okay? Mm-hmm. The difference between Herman's Hermits playing there and the Rolling Stones doing concerts is the crowd and the money, mm-hmm. because they're both nostalgia acts. They're yeah. both pa- pandering to, well, I mean, boomers like me, who, who want to hear satisfaction, want to hear Start Me Up. They want to hear I Haven't mm-hmm. Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadows. They want to hear that stuff, and they're willing to shell out to do it. You know, Herman's Hermit's crowd, they want to go and hear Peter Noon chirping, uh, I'm Henry VIII, I am. <laughs> but you're only going to get, you know, you're only going to get 400 people like that. Yeah. But they're both nostalgia yeah. acts. One is one hell of a lot bigger nostalgia act. And, you know, the Stones, for a number of years, they routinely put out live albums because nobody was really buying their studio albums. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and it's I guess as musicians, certainly I, I get that they want to be, they, they want to continue to be creating new music, but the reality is, I mean, you might throw one or two new songs in the show, and you know, people will still cheer because it's the Stones. But then, if you move from that song into "Start Me Up" and watch the crowd go completely apeshit, yeah, you know, because they know that song. Yeah, yeah. Hey, and, you know what happens when the baby boomers croak? What happens when we're all gone? <laughs> is Britney Spears going to be a nostalgia act? Is she going to be up there when she's fifty, out playing, playing, you know, to to 30,000 people uh, singing uh, "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time" when she's fifty, or, I, or I in know. the case of Mick Jagger, seventy. Well, he's they keep doing it. These guys, I guess, oh, if, yeah. they, if they if they generate new audiences, then then they can. They sort of roll it over, right? Eh? As people pass away well, or stop going I, out. I agree. I, I I agree with that. But the yeah. death of Charlie Watts, it was a huge, huge yeah. thing for the stuff. And well, that's like ACDC the... without Phil Rudd. You know, it changes yeah. the whole dynamic of that band you loved. It it does, but it also it for the guys in the bands, and, and I'm particularly talking about the Stones in this case. Charlie was their rock, mm-hmm. and not just on a musical level. And they were committed to the two dates that they, they have done or, or are still doing or whatever. Right. But I, I don't see them launching another tour again because Charlie's not there. I mean, they don't need the money. But I don't see them doing it without Charlie. No, they they will because once they read, once they clean up all that paperwork with Charlie's uh, estate and stuff, they'll be like, "Hey, if we go out now, the three of us are gonna make so much." I I, <laughs> I don't I don't think that, I honestly don't think that will be the motivation. I think at this point they're gonna say, yeah. "Why?" You know, it's the camaraderie that we lost. Well, I, Keith you know, Richards me, said in the first year of the pandemic, and he was at home the whole year, and they interviewed him. He did some interview. He said. They said, what's, what's, what have you liked then about being home all year? And he said, I've watched my garden go through an entire cycle. And he says, I've never in my life been able to be in one place all year and watch that happen. That's true. And but, that's, but if that's so ingrained in you, how can you, I, how can you just stop? I buy, I buy that, but the, yeah. the, 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 the catalyst for change is the passing of Charlie. And yeah. not being able, and being on stage, for Keith Richard, being on stage to look back and not see Charlie Watts there, or looking back, not seeing Charlie Watts. I don't see them, I could be wrong, of course I could be wrong. Well, they lo- they've lost the most important. a massive tour without Charlie again. <laughs> but they've lost the most talented person in their band before, like when Brian Jones passed away, and they kept yeah, going. Yeah, 
things were different. I mean, when Brian Jones died, the Stones were broke. Yeah. And heavily in debt. So well, it wasn't a question them. of just... folding. It was a question of we need to tour the States. And, you know, we can't tour with Brian because he's still stoned out. And he's also got several drug offenses against him. So mm-hmm. he, was, he was asked to leave the band. And then he died, you know, within a month of leaving the band. Yeah. But he was already out of the band by then because they had to tour in the fall because they had no money. Right. And they couldn't, they couldn't go. They couldn't go with Brian. So Brian had become a liability in his own band, which yeah. is sad. Now, you take the case of, of The Who. When, when Keith Moon died, I mean, he was such an integral part of the band visually mm-hmm. and in sound, too. They replaced him with, with technically a better drummer. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't and the Brian same. Brian Jones was yeah. technically a better drummer. Yeah, it wasn't the same at all. Yeah. And, and so, but they still carried on as the Who. And then John Entwistle dies. Mm-hmm. And, oh, John would want us to tour. So they keep yeah. going. It's, it's, like, it's like the Who by attrition. Yeah. Who's yeah. left? You know, and then they keep going out as the Who. Led Zeppelin did it right. And, and when, you know, when John Bonham died, Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they got together and decided that that's it. Yeah. You know, I mean, they've done the odd little thing here and there, you know, one-off thing. But they said that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, from I, I bought the first Led Zeppelin album, the, the you know the month that it came out, you know, January of '69 here, mm-hmm. and you bought all their albums, loved them. But right from the needle on the vinyl, John, it's John Bonham. Yeah. He was such an integral part of that band. And he was, I mean, the way Jimmy Page mixed the albums was to have John Bonham, his the drum sound up front. Mm-hmm. It wasn't behind. It wasn't like a Ringo who's behind the beat and, and holding it down behind the beat. John Bonham was front and center. Mm-hmm. And it was like you were at a Zeppelin concert and standing in front of the stage. And Bonham is, is a part of that whole, you know, phalanx of sound. Yeah. Um, and, and, I think I think a lot of people sort of minimized his role when you're talking about you know Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, and you know Robert Plant. Mm-hmm. But John Bonham was a key element to Led Zeppelin sound, and he, he really didn't get and doesn't get the credit that he deserves. I mean, Jimmy Page got it. He yeah. knew. He knew yeah. from the first time he heard Bonham, he's my guy. He's yeah. going to define the sound of, of of this new band, and he did. And isn't it like um like in every song they did, every great song, they all sounded different because. John could play behind all that stuff. And it's, yep. that's like Ringo because Ringo didn't matter. Like they say, oh, I got an idea for a song. They'd be whatever. And he'd be like, oh, well, here's the drum beat that goes with it. Here's how yeah. we do that one. You know, he wouldn't Ringo. even think about it. He's just like that, that this is this, this is that, you know, and, and Bonham was the same because you don't, you're not listening to the, the musicians in those songs. You're listening to the songs. Yeah. You and, know? and, I mean, Ringo didn't come into his, into his own and really tell, um, Revolver, and certainly on, on Sergeant Pepper. I mean, he really when they mic them closer and, and too, especially yeah. in Abbey and Abbey Road, where yeah. he 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 the, the drums almost became a melodic part of the song. I mean, yeah. he contributed so much. Yeah, you know, can I just ask you one last question? Yeah, sure. Coming back, circling around to Amanda Stott. So she they put all that money into her. She she puts out a single. It doesn't do anything. They drop her eventually from the label. What? So she would be indebted to that label on her account, what happens to an artist like that when they're, when they're in a negative position with their label, but their label's sort of done with them financially, what happens? Yeah. The label would still own, uh, the recordings and, um, you know, for whatever reason, songs are still going to be played sometimes on the radio. I mean, you might get some sales. Um, she just never sees a penny from it Mm -hmm. until it's all cleared off or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, she signed, she got picked up uh, got about a year after she got dropped, picked up by a smaller label, 
And again, the, the, the smaller label didn't have the ability to, to really push her in the way that she could. And she kind of went uh, unheard for a long time. And, and then she got involved with musical theater kind of productions. And she was singing some with a touring company of Cirque du Soleil. And uh, then she got into singing, I think, uh, you know, kind of Christian contemporary kind of music. But it, it, it's a sad reality for her. And, and she's not alone. Tara Lynn Hart Another Manitoba country artist who was signed in her teens mm -hmm. put out her first album, a lot of money behind her, brought her to L.A. to record. Uh, and the first album, again, barely scraped 6,000 uh, copies, which yeah. is peanuts. I mean, mm -hmm. that's like parking meter money for a record label. Yeah. And dropped, you know, and, and, and dropped. Well, do they have because... to pay that back? Like, are, are they personally on the hook or does the the product that the label controls, the, do they just... Are they are they just left with that to try and flog it to make their money yes, back? That's exactly right. And, okay, and so they're sort right. of free agents. Like if they're cut from the label, then yes. you can go work somewhere else, and you don't have to keep paying them. Yeah, and and the label writes them off. Mm -hmm. I mean, here, here's here's something that John Kay from Steppenwolf told me because I wrote his life story. He said, you know, back in the day, back in you know when Steppenwolf was signed in like '67, '68, he said record labels would sign ten unknown acts and record them, and if one of them made it. It was mm -hmm. enough to pay the cost of the other nine, yeah. because you could make records cheap back then, and you can produce cheap back then, and there were no videos to make or anything, yeah. so you could take that chance, and you could just you know write off the other nine as a loss, and the the one out of the ten that made it, there's your money, there's your, there's your success, and so for a lot of record labels, yeah, they they can write it off. I mean, a tax write off is a pretty good thing for them mm -hmm. to, to have, and they'll go on to whoever's selling the big big records, but. What it means for those artists like Amanda Stott and Terrell Lynn Hart is that um, all this expectation, you know, all this work, mm -hmm. all it's just it it's just you know done. Goodbye, thanks. Yeah. You know, the record label is thanks, but no thanks. We're done. See you around. Um, that's that's pretty awful, especially for someone like like Amanda Stott, who's like seventeen, eighteen years old, yeah. to have to face that. Anyway, it, but oh, you know, okay. I, I did a I did a class with the University of Winnipeg. I, I do music appreciation classes with them, and I did one a few weeks ago called "How the Music Business Really Works," <laughs> and it was for them. Yeah. yeah, these these are you know obviously you know people in their twenties. For them, it was such a sobering experience to learn that you know you, you've got this um, feeding like a hierarchy, whatever you want, and at the mm -hmm. bottom of that food chain. With the scraps that are left is the recording artist. Yes. Because everybody, the record label management, accountants, blah, 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 everybody's getting their 10, 15 percent. And, and the scraps that are left are for the artist. And the, 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 the thought that you could put out a record and be a millionaire is, is completely ludicrous. And it's funny, and they're left holding the bag because when you say, uh, that band sucks, <laughs> it's like it's probably the last they're the last people that created that suckage <laughs> like everything yeah. else sucked all the money yeah. up and everything yep. and and they like their label sucked or their they and our guys sucked or their somebody along the way didn't do something to help them be better or to actually or even just be who they were which they were already great so it's not hard. I'll, give, I'll give you a I'll give you a quick story <laughs> like that here before i go there was a band in winnipeg in the uh early 1990s called hypnogogo yeah yeah and they played socials and bars they were quite mm. popular and they're quite good and they wrote original material so they were signed to a major label i, I don't remember who it was bmg or somebody or, or sony 
and went to Toronto, signed a big contract, recorded an album, back on the road, and the record label's given them some tour support money, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they're out there, and the record label says, oh, okay, we got the album's all done, it's coming out, we're going to send you a box full of albums, and they're out there playing Moose Jaw or something, yeah. and the box of albums arrives, and they open it up, and <laughs> the album says, White Heat! Wait, he's... <laughs> and I said, where, where did Hypnogogo go? And so they phoned the record label and said, oh, well, we didn't like your name, so we changed it. Yeah, and it's in the contract, <laughs> I mean, you can read it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here they are now having to go out as White Heat. Oh, I mean, no. <laughs> and, you know, and all of a sudden, because the album didn't start selling right away, all of a sudden the tour support started to dry up. Yeah. And the gigs started to dry. And they found themselves back playing the St. Fatale Hotel in Winnipeg. Yeah. As, as White Heat, a band they didn't even like the name of. Now, if you grew up in Manitoba, I guess, 70s, 80s, 90s, you heard a lot of Manitoba music. And again, thank you, I guess, to the local radio, as John pointed out. So I, I do thank them because it was a, a quite a rich mix. We heard the world music, but we also heard our local music, and it was good stuff. Still is. Play it. Because I think you'll be pretty amazed when you play. Even just take the greatest hits, Harlequin, uh, some of the Pumps Orphan music, some of the, uh, a lot of Street Heart, first album for sure, and then the greatest hits. And you'll find a lot of local stuff from that era. Um, I'm not even mentioning, those are just the ones that come to mind. But there's a lot of good music locally, and still is. And thank you to local media, I guess, for playing that, because I didn't know that nobody else heard that music. And, um, and that's too bad. I think a lot of people missed out on some real fun stuff. And I hope they're getting it now. The music now is worldwide, and it's easy to drill down and find uh, music you didn't know about. I'm I'm always finding stuff that I didn't know about that wasn't popular back in the day. And now with iTunes and with uh, other music services out there, you can go and really drill down. And every time you read an interview or somebody says, now this band was really great, they just didn't get any PR, no marketing, you can go and find that band now. And that's the, that's the good thing about the internet, all right? And this podcast is the other good thing about the internet. So there you go. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's good. It's good to talk to people like John and really get perspective and, and ask questions that we don't know the answers to. Like, why? Why? And then he, he can fill you in. And um, it's good to have people like John in different, in different lines of business because we do need to be filled in. It's critical to fill me in. And let me know what's going on because these questions just nag for decades and then you get to go, ah, that's why. Okay. Very, very nice. Right on. Okay. So thank you. Uh, again, search uh, Manitobaville. That's your keyword, Manitobaville. And you can search on social medias. You can search on podcatchers. You can tell your friends just to look up Manitobaville. We'll help you out. We'll get the word into your ear from the source. So, um, yeah, we don't look gift horses in the mouth. We just throw a saddle on them. And you got to appreciate that, right? <laughs> just do that. I heard that the other day, and I thought that was a good thing. You got to appreciate a person who throws a saddle on a gift horse instead of looking in his mouth. And uh, But that's that's interesting. So just do that. Whenever you get a gift, just uh, say thank you. Thank you so much for thinking of me. You know, worry about it all later. Okay. So speaking of worrying about it all later, we got more interviews, uh, fresh stuff coming. And um, yeah, so stay tuned. Stay tuned to your podcatcher. 
and we're going we're gonna to start pumping some of that out. Okay, so this is Mahangel. This is Manitobaville Podcast, and I just want to remind you all that we are copywritten 2022 Rodeo Road Studios. Mm-hmm.